the main focus of this conversation will be your your documentary. But if we can squeeze in some stuff about the Knicks, uh, some basketball stuff, anything like that, I'm also up for that as well. Sammy, you can ask me whatever you want, man. You were cool last time. You could, it don't matter. So okay. <laughs> whatever you want to talk, whatever you want to talk about, I got. I can give you about an hour. All so. right. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. My name isn't Sam Malone. It's Sammy Yunan. And also, hearty warm welcome to return guest, producer and director, Johnny Sweet. As you can sort of maybe tell from the Sam Malone reference, we're talking about Cheers. Not the show, but rather the classic bar experience. Pull up a bar stool. I'll activate cliff mode. I first met and interviewed Johnny Sweet at Hot Docs 2019 for his NBA documentary, Quiet Storm, The Ron Artest Story. That documentary about basketball and mental health in Queens, the borough most thorough, can be seen on Showtime On Demand. His new documentary is Last Call, The Shutdown of New York City Bars. Fraser Crane would dig it because it documents the mental health impact of the service industry lockdowns. So, of course, in response to the pandemic, New York City, along with everywhere else, basically, was shut down. However, there is a remarkable difference in how we handled certain occupations, like sarcastic servers like Carla and white-collar workers like Norm. As an accountant, Norm works in an office. He can seamlessly work online. All the tools are there, and his beer is in the fridge. But what does Carla do? Her job is to serve others. The sad irony is that the people who have committed to serving others were not thoroughly taken care of. We didn't serve the servers. That's a large aspect of Johnny Sweet's documentary Last Call. We'll get into other aspects, including the upcoming sequel, as well as Johnny's sweet coaching recommendations for the Knicks. That's a two for a pun. Coach was a great Cheers character. But before all that, at the risk of forgetting, like Woody so often does, Woody's another great character, we gotta start with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a popular universe, 25 movies deep, where we all hang out and where everybody knows the names of the characters and get an update from Johnny. So, uh, are you ready to talk about all the scenes that are going on in Queens? Uh, sure, sure. Ask away. Before we get into your documentary, I do need an update. Because the last time that we talked, we discussed Avengers Endgame. <laughs> At the time... I know we also talked about your Ron Artest documentary, but we did discuss Avengers Endgame. Oh, yeah. At the time, you told me that you didn't have a favorite MCU character, but you do have a favorite Marvel movie, which was Winter Soldier. So That's true, yeah. Is that still the same? Uh, like, because we've now had a few more Netflix shows, we've had some Disney Plus shows. Has anything kind of like emotionally changed in terms of your reaction to the Marvel Universe? Do you have a favorite character? Nope. Okay. It's no, no favorite character. Still, Winter Winter Soldier to me is still the best all around film. You know, it's just well written. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, all of them have apocalyptic end of the world type scenarios, but that one felt there was a sense of realism. Mm-hmm. At, at, uh, more in that film than the others. But uh, don't get me wrong, I'm entertained by a lot of them. That one's 
if I have to pick one, that's the one to that's the one to pick. Are you looking forward to any of the the new ones, the Chang Chi, which has got some kind of Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan going on, Eternals? Any of them kind of like piquing your interest? The the new Spider Man looks like it might it might mess with us a bit. So I, I saw the trailer got leaked, and then Sony did a great job of squashing all the leaks uh i was too late because mm-hmm. i'm gen x and I'm, I'm gen x so i'm yeah. slow to technology I didn't get to pop. yeah yeah no oh, that's right that's right that's what we were mm-hmm. and in some ways still are uh yeah i wasn't able to get the be able to see the trailer but that's the one i'm, I'm most curious about since there that seems to be the the, the big multiverse yeah uh tie-in i want to see how they kind of tie that also with dr strange because his subtitle is the multiverse right yeah because he's kind of magic, and he saw all the different like uh, scenarios in Endgame, so he sees things, right? So I want to see where this goes as well with Doctor Strange, but that's next year. Yeah, well, he's supposed to be in this one, I think, mm-hmm. this Spider-Man one. So uh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very curious because I was very entertained by Loki. That show was fantastic. Yep. So. Uh, so I don't have a, a smooth segue to get into your documentary, which is the complete <laughs> opposite. I was hoping this conversation would go somewhere that I could like smoothly and transition into it. But well, this is this part actually is strange. On March 23, 2020, in a press conference, uh, President Trump said, and I quote, our country wasn't built to be shut down. And he was kind of right. This is one of the few times he was right during the pandemic. It didn't happen a lot because the, Amer- the American economy really kind of functions as a self-perpetuating machine, right? So before we get into the, your doc, can you kind of take me through your reaction? Like, I know you're an NBA guy. So like when the NBA got shut down and everything started to kind of, all the dominoes started to fall back in March 2020, what was your initial reaction uh, to those kind of experiences and to what was happening? Uh, professionally for me uh, and my team, we lost all our projects. So we had to, you know, come to grips with that real quick. Uh, I was also living in the heart of the epicenter, so I got to see firsthand outside my front door window, outside our, our window, what was happening on a daily basis. So my wife and I had to get used to that. We had to get used to sirens going off every five to ten minutes. We're right by the two main hospitals that got obliterated the most, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we had, we had to get used to that, and... Uh, you know, uh, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the greatest year. I could imagine. Yeah. The footage in your documentary is very startling because it's New York city supposed to be the city that never sleeps. Right. And it looked like it was like, uh, what was that Tom Cruise movie where they shut down times square? Right. Or like 20 days later when the dudes walk around like London, England. And it's like, I know they do that for productions and they can shut down the streets and they can shut down a neighborhood, but that's usually for a period of time. Like, Obviously, this was much longer, so that must have been very startling to kind of see that, like to go from that kind of energy and that hum to just like that stillness. I could drive from Queens to Brooklyn to Manhattan all the way up to the Bronx in less than a half hour during that time period, and that's, that's so what we nice. did. That's what we did. That's how we filmed a lot of our stuff because we there was no one on the road, mm-hmm. so we we could do that. Your documentary, congratulations, is one, it's the winner of Best Documentary at the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival, Last Call, The Shutdown of New York City Bars. How would you describe this documentary? It's really a tale of, it's a tale of two communities that needed each other. 
in order for the city to get over that initial hump of the virus. So on one hand, you have the obvious lauded heroes of the frontline healthcare workers uh, who were working day and night at Mount Sinai, Elmhurst, Montefiore, you know, the hospital in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, all across the city, you had all those. On the other side, you had the hospitality industry that for the most part willingly sacrifice their personal and financial lives and freedoms in order to help stop the spread. Mm-hmm. And instead of being lauded or, and recognized for this uh, sacrifice that they made, which the medical community has, has sent that message out plenty of times to them, they, in a way, were actually villainized later on um, later on during the pandemic. So I think this was the film we wanted to make was we wanted to kind of educate the public that, especially for those who continue, who continue to earn their livings sitting behind a laptop with Wi-Fi and zoom, and you could still go about, you know, collecting your paycheck every two weeks because you didn't have to do face to face contact in order to, in order to pay your bills. These people didn't have that choice. They had to shut it all down and live off of after taxes, 380 bucks, you know, a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's basically the message we were trying to tell people is for those who aren't, who don't work in that industry, who don't work in the face to face environments who can work from home. This, this is a different perspective that I think that I think those people needed in order to see how this really impacted thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this country. A kind of metaphor or analogy of what you're talking about is when the NBA did get shut down, people were like, oh, we need to have the games back. We need to have the games back. And they were pushing to resume or finish the season or conclude the season. And lost in that whole discussion was like some people were saying like, oh, you know, like the millionaires will be fine. The millionaires will be fine. But it's all the people that work in those arenas, right? The guy who sells the popcorn, the guy who makes the hot dog. Like there's a whole like industry inside those arenas that we tend to overlook that make those stadiums hum that make them work right it's not just like you just magically show up and then 12 guys and on one team and 12 guys on another team start facing off you need to have all those people and those people were the ones that if if the games didn't come back and obviously they didn't come back with fans so it was a different thing we didn't expect that but if the games didn't come back those people would lose all that industry and like not just the games but like there's concerts at madison square garden there's um other events experiences and so those are the things we tend to overlook in terms of the big picture. Yeah. Uh, in terms of New York here, the hospitality industry is responsible for billions and billions and billions of commerce in the largest densely populated city in America. And not only that, they serve the arts. When people come to New York, their dream is to be on Broadway mm-hmm. or to work in tell or to work in television in any of those artistic fields. They come and get a job as a bartender. They come and get a job as you know, working at a restaurant. So they do that in order to supplement their dreams. So when you take all that away, you're, you're, you're annihilating this void of, of artists that stream into the city every single year to try and make it. So that was another side effect that I don't know how it will impact us down the line. But culturally, it left a a huge hole here because 
those people were all out of work and most of them had to, a lot of them had to leave. Are we at the point now where we can kind of talk about that tension, I guess? Like you mentioned, like when the pandemic first hit, you lost a lot of projects. And there's a weird thing where like, I don't know if maybe selfish is the right word or like it, you get, you get tagged with being selfish when you're trying to wrestle with what you've actually lost and what we've actually collectively lost as a society. Uh, you're talking about some of the art stuff and I know like you can't put a, a price tag or a figure on it, but if a lot of people get upset, it feels like you're being selfish and you're overlooking the fact that a lot of people died. It was a pandemic and I get that, but we did lose quite a bit, a lot of art stuff. It, is the documentary a way then for us to kind of communicate that and kind of start talking about that as well? Uh, I, I mean, if you watch it, those perspectives are all taken care of. We don't, we don't shy away from any of them. Mm-hmm. So I think you can talk about all of them together because they're all different. They're all aspects of life. So no, I mean, if people want to get sensitive about that, then you just have to, uh, I hate to say you, you kind of just have to calm down and just have an open dialogue and be, and just be open-minded it doesn't mean one is so interlinked with the other it's not a monolith kind of way of thinking about this situation mm-hmm. so in this film in, in this film we talk about all of, you know we talk about all of it there's uh, we talk a lot about death in this film i mean mm-hmm. uh we don't shy away from that you see it it's not a pleasant sight but you know it's we we don't shy we, we, we don't hide from that fact and what inspired you to then make this? Because uh, like you said, you're dealing with a number of issues. Um, so this is a complex topic. What kind of, what was the initial spark or the story that kind of like drew you to this? Well, when I was in college, I worked at a bar uh, called Conrad's. And some of my best friends in the world are still from that experience. It was the best morale I ever had professionally. So when this all started happening, the first industry I thought of outside of my own was the bar and restaurant industry. So I, I, I knew we were out of projects. We had nothing to do. And we probably, the best thing to do is to work on something locally. Uh, luckily enough, we found Jenna, who was courageous enough to start talking in the middle of probably one of the most stressful years of her life. Mm-hmm. And just the domino effect went from there. Explain who Jenna is, just for people who haven't seen the documentary. She's a really cool, boisterous lady. Uh, Jenna is a bartender at, at, at Sparrow Tavern and her life is upended when the pandemic comes in and shuts everything down in March of 2020. And it's not just her, but her co-workers as well, mm-hmm. who all in, in this one Queens bar circle that all take us through this journey of what it was like to go through what they went through this past year in, in terms of the hospitality uh, in terms of the, hosp- the hits that the hospitality industry took and will and still continue to take. And one of the responses they had was uh, one of Jenna's coworkers, Willie. He said, instead of a, a heart attack, let's have an art attack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was really cool. Explain what the art attack is. It was really inspiring. So one side, the, uh, w- one aspect to this film, which uh, we found fascinating when we started diving into it, was that you know, these, uh, some people who were isolated, they had all this time. So it's a matter of how do you use this time of isolation? Do you, do you sit there and just let it all pass you by as you wait this thing out? Or do you use that time creatively to dive back into the passions that brought you into New York for the first place? So for Jenna, it was acting, performing, which she used when she taped her cocktail 
uh, shows in which she now has turned into a, a thriving business. Mm-hmm. For Willie, Willie was already a successful underground MC in Queens. He has a name. So now it was more of a matter of time. Well, I have all this time and might as well use it. And he used it to write two albums, which he, you know, which have been, which were recently released. So he didn't want to waste that freedom, that unfortunate freedom that he was given. And he used it in order to, in order to write and to get his artistic energies out on wax. And this is the, this is the interesting thing too, because now it also kind of prompted like soul searching what what you're getting at too, one of the themes of the documentary was that these are the people who serve us, who take care of us, but we we as like a society or we as a government, we're not taking care of them, right? So it wasn't a reciprocated relationship. No, they were not given a, a lifeline to get their lives back, which we actually go much further into, which we're working on the follow up to this film. Like a sequel. So there's a lot. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a yeah, there's a lot of things that happen politically behind the scenes that led to this industry being left behind yet again. Mm-hmm. They're always left behind. They're always left behind because they don't have they don't have unions and lobbyists like the oil and banks and you know gas industries and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we we, ta- we we tackle that in the in the in the follow up to this film. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go down this road too much, but it was interesting having an outsider perspective before I saw your documentary where a lot of media praised Cuomo initially. He was doing really well and he was considered a strong leader and blah, blah, blah. And then of course, local media who had the receipts <laughs> were very critical of him. And like, there was a real disconnect there in terms of the stories that we're getting, like whether you were in New York or outside of New York, like I was, but your documentary then actually puts like more than just like the stats or whatever. It puts the stories and the faces together. So you see the effects of the decisions that they're making. We didn't. We knew there was going to be hundreds of COVID documentary films that were probably in production coming out. We didn't want to make a technically a, a COVID film. We wanted to make a human film going going a humanizing film going through this this past year. So uh, no, in terms of <laughs> in terms of Cuomo and how. Uh, you know, your, your average New Yorker here that works in this industry, no, he's hated. Mm-hmm. And he had very good reason to be hated, to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he shut down a lot of people's lifelines, for which, which had to be done. It had to be done. And the industry knew it had to be done for the betterment of the health of the community. Mm-hmm. But to not, pro, not to help provide the runway to allow them to get their businesses back on track, which are already hanging on by a thread in the first place, that was morally wrong, mm-hmm. and when you and when you sick the state and liquor authority on these on these businesses that are barely trying to survive, and you're fining them for every little changing fraction, which changes literally by the day or the week, and if you're not if you know, and a lot of these places are owned by older Gen X or you know baby boomer age groups, you're not as adept to technology as the younger generation is. So if you're not on Twitter looking every 30 minutes to see if a rule has changed and someone from the state liquor authority comes in and finds you for that rule, I mean, it's just, you you can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did. And he did that mostly to make up for the lost revenues that the state had during, uh, during last year. 
I see. And part of the other anxiety that a lot of people had, and I thought it was really interesting, and I never thought about it until I saw your doc, was the ambulance sirens. That was like a literal manifestation of the pandemic. Like it created an audio trauma, I guess is the best way to put it. Was that something that like you and other people were also experiencing or was that something kind of like an observation that your wife who does mental health stuff, uh, she kind of picked up on? No, I mean, that was right outside our door. We heard it all the time. Even still to this day, when I now when I hear sirens, it's I, I grew up with sirens because I grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. So but before it was just amp, it was just outside noise that you got used to when you grew up in New York. Uh, now, when I hear ambulance sirens, particularly, it's it's a little the stress level is a little bit higher. And I don't think most of us are still perceiving that noise uh, in a different lane than the one that we were used to growing up. Is the mental health aspect like, let me rephrase the question. Cause I, I want to ask you a slightly mean question. Sure. Um, are there parallels between the way that we've responded to this pandemic and to the mental health uh, issues with this lockdowns with the way that we have responded to like nine 11, like a lot of the survivors and responders after nine 11, have a lot of like ailments, um, kind of that kind of stuff. Whereas for most of most of us, we felt that like nine eleven was kind of over by like Thanksgiving, right? Everyone was kind of going back on planes, going away for relatives. SNL was back on track, but all the people that had the ailments and like uh, asthma and other type of things, they were struggling. And so, but we don't tend to count them as part of the the death toll. We only count the the ones that happened on September morning. So are we kind of not factoring in as well that like this big impact of like all the mental health and because I know it still might be still a little too early to factor it in, but is, are we should we start acknowledging it a little bit more than like just the actual physical or sorry the, the actual financial ramifications of these lockdowns? Uh, I wouldn't really know the answer to that. Uh, if I did, I could give you I could give you a better answer. I can only I can only tell you about the characters that we. Uh, the people that we followed mm-hmm. in this in this doc, um, I can't give you numbers uh, that say whether we're better prepared or not better prepared. I think I think this country is slightly better educated than we were 20 years ago in that lane. But are we at a level that where it's where we where we should be? Probably not. But I. If I was if I was a better expert in the in that lane, I could I could, I could give mm-hmm. you a better answer. That's fair. I knew it was going to be a mean question. Um, but it's also, I also find that parallel, the parallels between this doc and then the one I talked to you before about the Ron Artest documentary, where there is like, you're running through Queens again. There's some elements of hip hop as well. Some mental health. (laughs) Is this becoming your, like, uh, your, the Johnny sweet kind of like trademark, I guess. Uh, I hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not my goal to be honest. I'm, I don't want to, it's not like I set out to like make films that are, only queens based mm-hmm. uh oh look i made a film about michael vick and he's from virginia right so um <laughs> hbc I, yeah mm-hmm. i don't so uh no i think this was just circumstantial mm-hmm. i couldn't go anywhere i couldn't really go anywhere i had to stay local mm-hmm. i had to do something work-wise that would tell a story that means something uh even if it didn't make any money so uh, no, it's just the, the neighborhoods are similar, but the, the stories are different. Yeah. Were you surprised that Netflix uh, authorized a um, Malice at the Palace documentary? 
No, I knew about that project long, way before mm-hmm. it was announced. So, no, I wasn't surprised. For people who don't know, can you just give us a quick breakdown of uh, your Ron Artest, The Quiet Storm documentary? It was a really fascinating documentary. Uh, sure. Uh, well, Quiet Storm is about former NBA champion Ron Artest, who had a turbulent career in the league. And a lot of it was because we were not educated on his psychological diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Back then, if you were labeled as, I don't mean to use this term, but that's just what they used back then. But if you were labeled as crazy, it was considered a death knell to your career and people didn't want to work with you. So Ron was trying to balance that tightrope and he went off the tightrope when John Green threw a cup at him which initiated the malice of the palace, which, you know, it's considered the darkest day in the history of the NBA and one of the darkest days in North American sports. Mm-hmm. So um, that film really is about how Ron has been dealing with his diagnosis since he was a child, his bipolar anxiety disorder, and how it took a long time for him in terms of recognizing the causes that led to that led to his diagnosis, both from a genetic aspect, socioeconomic aspect, and environmental, and then applying the exercises that he was taught during his MBA career from his psychologist, both in Indianapolis and then eventually the one that he had when he went to Houston, which he's still Dr. Santi, which is still his psychologist to this day, mm-hmm. and how that enabled him to become a key figure on a championship team with the Lakers. And more importantly, when they won because of his shot in game seven and he was interviewed when he thanked his psychologist after winning it, that kicked the door open. Mm -hmm. That's where people who were hiding in the shadows could now come out and feel a little more confident and comfortable talking about, you know, maybe I should see somebody or maybe I am seeing somebody and I don't have to keep it a secret like Tony Soprano kept it a secret forever in The Sopranos. <laughs> right. Terrible comparison. Terrible comparison, I know, but yeah. to, to try and simplify it. Well, I mean, we've seen so. now like Kevin Love and like DeMar DeRozan and a few other NBA players now step forward and write articles and kind of discuss these things, right? So um, it's given a lot more language, I guess, for these discussions. Yeah, but those guys got credit for being – you know, for being courageous and coming out and talking about that. Ron didn't get any credit at the time he was laughed at. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the difference. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're talking about an era where like people didn't know what to do with Dennis Rodman. The guy's coloring his hair. There was all these articles on like him coloring his hair, which is like, who, who cares? He's getting 14, 18 rebounds a night. Like he's doing what he's supposed to do. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care what color his hair is. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there's also a reason why Dennis Robin was Ron Artest's favorite player. Mm-hmm. So, Sticking with just a little bit more with basketball, and we'll segue back to your documentary. I'm not sure how, but, like, were you happy or pleased with the current resurgence of the New York Knicks? They seem to be back on track. I had no problems with last year. Yeah, we got smacked up in the playoffs, but it's a young team. Mm-hmm. Finally have a coach that knows what he's doing. Coach, coach that I want. I wanted Tibbs. I wanted Tibbs for over twelve years, mm-hmm. but you know I don't run the team. But no, they're finally building it the right way. I felt like going into the summer they might do one of those like trades, like they did for Melo, where they gutted half the roster to get that one superstar player. Mm-hmm. 
which might be good for a season and a half, but for the long-term growth of the franchise, obviously, you know, it can be challenging to still maintain that success. Cause I don't think people remember the year, the season following when Mello was traded, you know, they won 54 games. And if Carmelo's shoulder and Tyson Chandler's neck don't have physical and J.R. Smith's knee don't all have the ailments that they did, they probably at least go to the conference finals, but mm-hmm. You know, no, I no. <laughs> I love the Knicks. The, the way things the Knicks are doing right now, they're 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 operating like a smart organization, which I uh, I haven't felt that way since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And picking up Kemba, I think, should help a little bit more in the backcourt. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about Juice McBride, who's actually a second round draft pick, because mm-hmm. when Kemba and Derek and Derek Rose are going to have nights where they can't play, this kid is going to sub in and he looks like I'm watching him in summer league. And usually I don't really, when I watch summer league, I'm like, all right, it's summer league. This is really, but he looks like Marcus smart. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, I don't know if he'll ever get to that level, but he just looks like Marcus smart when he's playing. That's a nice comparison. And then are you at all, I guess, I'm not sure what the word is worried or concerned or annoyed by the nets. Because on paper, that's a pretty formidable team. Worried. Well, I mean, if they're healthy, they're going to win the title. Yeah. It's, just, it's simple. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Does that still, is I that good re- enough for you, though? Or, like, it's still New York, Brooklyn? No, they're from Jersey. Okay. <laughs> okay. Still New Jersey Nets. Yeah. They, no, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't. If you start becoming a Brooklyn Nets fan, you know, in the last 10 years, you're either very young growing up in New York or you're fair weather. Mm-hmm. Or you're from Jersey. Okay. And see, this is the thing too. Like, this is how we're going to circle back to your documentary because these sports discussions, these are what happens in bars and these arguments and these conversations. And you had a writer from The New Yorker in your documentary and he talked about a third place, uh, John Moshaw. So can you describe the third place theory? It's the thought that all of us have a place that we like to go to to escape where we don't where we can shut off where we don't have to quote unquote perform so it's you know when you're at home you have to be a certain way when you're at work you have to be a certain way the third place is where you can go and you feel like you can just shut off and be your be your complete self and you're accepted for who you are so there's plenty of examples of those kind of third places for for us in this story that we're telling it's the bar Mm -hmm. it's where you the neighborhood bar that you go to where you see familiar faces, you know, bartender gives you a little discount on your tab. Uh, there's a game on, you can shoot the shit with whomever you're talking to there. It's all love at the end of the day with these patrons. Cause you've probably known them since you moved into that area and you're just accepted. They don't care what you do for a living. They don't care what you've done in your life. Mm-hmm. They just, they're just there to, you know, to escape whatever they're trying to escape and chill and relax and, have a beer and shoot the shit and that's it. And it's relaxing yeah. for other people. It's for other people. It's the basketball court. Neighborhood basketball court is, is, can be a third place it's for some people. It's church. Mm-hmm. For some it's a library for some. It's just a coffee shop where you just go and you want to read. So there's countless examples of, 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 of third places, but in New York, that's really important because the far majority of us who live in New York, we live in apartments that are really small and we don't have living rooms, so we need an ex- a living room extension somewhere. Mm-hmm. So most of that, most of the time, that winds up being the neighborhood bar. 
Yeah, I mean, the the whole point, again, like I mentioned, like New York City is a city that never sleeps and it's got all that energy and I've been to New York City many times and that's the whole point is like you're supposed to kind of go out and you're supposed to connect and it's a very community-connected uh, city, right? So that also must have been another weird thing too for like the neighborhoods to suddenly just lock down and then now you're kind of cut off from this community of people that you know. Uh, some obviously are out in the neighborhood and you might still run into them or see them when you go out for a walk or whatever. But for the most part, you're just, like you said, back in this small little apartment and <laughs> you don't have this like third place where you can like go to or connect or unwind to just be a little different or be a little goofy or be a little bit loud. No, it all got transferred to Zoom, which we're now learning is that life is that, that the Zoom life is causing, you know, far more psychological issues mm-hmm. than than we may have known in the past so just i don't know if you're bouncing from zoom meeting to zoom meeting for work it can be uh you know it's it, it's not the same as being within human contact and reading body language and things of that nature mm-hmm. and when are you hoping then you said there's a sequel then you're working on the sequel when are you hoping to finish that uh we're in post-production right now so uh hopefully by the winter okay so it was, hoping to have it done by then. It was sad because the the place that uh, you featured in Queens, uh, the Sparrow Tavern, I went on Yelp and it says it's permanently closed now. It's all done. We uh, walk by it every day. It's two blocks from where I live. There's it's just paint chipping off now. It's I haven't seen a for sale or for lease sign up yet, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon. Reading the Yelp reviews, it really reflected your documentary where people really loved it and like enjoyed the food and they were like recommending things and like it seemed like a uh, like a dope place just to hang out. It was the true it, it was this neighborhood's uh, that and the beer garden across the street are the two neighborhood establishments within our I want to say eight block radius that many people went to in order to and also there's no TVs in that bar. So you're like, when you walk in there, you're basically forced to have a conversation. So people who want to be social, mm-hmm. want to have, want to have a laugh or two. Sparrow Tavern was, you know, that was that kind of place to go to. And that's what Jenna and uh, her coworkers provided. And unfortunately that's gone. Do those losses ever get easier living in New York city? New York city seems to have a lot of turnover. In terms of the, the the blocks and the the stores and the restaurants and things like that, some of them don't always seem to last as long as they should. Does that kind of grief get easier, or this one is a particularly hard hit like uh, kind of grief? I think in this neighborhood it hit a little harder because uh, Queens, for the most part, is one of the, the Queens sections of Brooklyn, and then uh, actually uh, Staten Island are the ones are the sections of the city that haven't been fully taken over by the chains the chain restaurants so now they were already starting to take over before then but what the pandemic did it just sped up that process mm-hmm. so now it's now when i walk up to 31st street i see an ihop oh wow instead of the diner that was there mm-hmm. so it's you know that's sad because queens when you have that when you see the little green sign that welcome to Queens sign it says well uh was it the world's borough yeah. All right. Uh, you don't really see. I don't think there's one from Manhattan. I don't think there's a little tagline or anything from Manhattan and like a couple other places, right? Like, and I know Brooklyn has a lot of mythology that kind of people have hooked onto it, like Spike Lee and others. 
but the fact that it was Queens always had that the World's Borough on the actual sign was like it was kind of a point of pride. Well, yeah, this borough has 160 different dialects, so this is the only borough that has that. I mean, not to say other boroughs don't have, you know, tons of different dialects, but not mm -hmm. as many as here in Queens, you know. Okay, uh, so this documentary now is now on Tubi and other, like, streaming services? Tubi, Microsoft, uh, YouTube. You can, get, you can go right to YouTube and get it. Uh, it's pretty easy. Okay. Uh, it's probably your, it's probably the most efficient way to get it. But uh, in October, it'll be coming to Canada. Uh, oh, what's this outlet's called? I'm going to probably butcher it, and I apologize. TELUS? Is that, is that how it's Yeah, TELUS, yeah. It's coming to TELUS in October. Okay. So you guys can get it then, or if you just go to YouTube, you can you can get it. You can get there. We have Tubi here. Okay. Oh, well, see, show, shows what I know. Okay. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, no, it's because everything's always different anyways. But yeah, we have to be here. Um, and then after this, are you hoping then to get back to like sports? Because that tends to be your bread and butter in terms of the documentaries you make. You make sports-focused uh, documentaries. We are. We finished a film on the Lost Boys, which is a famous rap group from Queens in the mid to late '90s. Uh, we were in the process of talking to distributors on that. Mm -hmm uh other than that uh stuff that we're working on we can't l technically legally talk about but mm -hmm. they are in the, they are in the sports and rap music lanes are you surprised now like when 30 for 30 started uh there was not a lot of like sports documentaries and sports um journalism i guess in that term in that sense now it's just exploded showtime has some fantastic documentaries Netflix is getting to the act. HBO obviously has been putting out a lot of stuff. Like it's all over the place now. There, there's a real hunger uh, for these kind of a athletes and for these stories. Are you surprised or encouraged by this? Uh, not surprised. I wouldn't say I'm encouraged by how it's going in the last few years because the journalism aspect has been kind of annihilated mm -hmm. because you're not really seeing documentaries. You're seeing propaganda films where the subject has total editorial control of the documentary, which technically doesn't really make it a documentary, it makes it a, uh, a hagiography. So that's the trend that I'm seeing now, big time, where when 30 for 30 came out originally, and before that it was HBO, uh, that had, you know, had a lot of great films in this lane. Uh, you know, those films were, the, the editorial control was by the storytellers, the journalists. Mm -hmm who are trying to stay as objective as possible. Now these films that you're seeing come out now, a lot of them are not objective. And I'm very, it's very concerning. Yeah, it's a little bit of like control the narrative is what you're saying, right? So well, that's, that's what all, all these guys, that's all these guys care about is controlling the narrative. And look, a part of it, I get it, I understand. Uh, but if you're, if you're all about trying to tell the truth, uh, it's, it doesn't really line up. Mm -hmm. And it, like Jordan made the thing when he got eliminated by the Pistons three times. Was it three times? I think it was three times. When Jordan got eliminated by the Pistons three times, he made it part of his narrative, right? And so that he was able to overcome them and then like find success and stuff like that. Like those failures don't necessarily frame him, right? Like there's better ways to incorporate the narrative than just to like come out and like make a two hour thing where like I'm great. I'm the greatest ever. I'm the GOAT. And then I'm done, right? Mm hmm. 
Well, you're just talking about in terms of Last Dance and how that was done, or? Uh, no, just in terms of what you're saying with, like, the players who want to control the narrative. Because I find that there's a lot of NBA players now are starting up media companies, right? Yep. And, and part of that is, like you said, like we were both saying, is just you want to control the narrative. But I think what, what set Jordan apart and Kobe to a certain degree as well was the understood, not just the magnitude of the moment, but how it could, like, feed into the narrative, right? The whole narrative. Like, they weren't as mm-hmm. shy of it. Like, Kobe had the famous air balls, right? And, like, yeah. how that kind of fueled him and then that transformed him and then, like, then he was off and running and then five rings later, it's hard to, like, make an argument and circle back to the air balls, right? Well, I mean, I don't know about how Last Dance was made. Uh, I do know Jason's an amazing filmmaker and there were several really strong storytellers that worked on 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 the last dance so i i don't i it, it a lot of that felt like uh, there was a lot of objectives look they asked a lot of tough questions i mean mm-hmm. they asked david stern, they asked david stern the tough questions they asked uh i i don't think they ran and hid from a lot of things in that um but then again i don't know i i didn't work on that film so mm-hmm. i don't really that's fair. I right? don't really, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but I, I can definitely say when I watch stuff that comes out in the last couple of years, there's definitely things that aren't brought to the limelight that happened during someone's career because it's something negative that happened. Mm-hmm. So those just seem to be skirted to the side, and they're trying to brighten up their, you know, their their image by using the documentary storytelling format. Yeah. So. Jay-Z never raps about the 4040 club that closed in Vegas, right? He only raps about the businesses that succeed. So it gives him an impression that he's like this great businessman and billionaire and all these things. And he is those things, but you had to have a couple of failures and things closed along the way and setbacks that didn't quite work out. Yeah. But jay Z's not going to make a documentary about his whole, his, his whole life with him participating in it. That's true. You know, Mm-hmm. He's only gonna make he's only gonna make a docu series about the making of an album because mm-hmm. it's just gonna be it's just gonna be about the album. It's not gonna be about anything else, which he did with the Black Album, which was <laughs> great. We saw him working with Pharrell and Timberland. Like the the moment where he's sit, he's sitting there with Timberland trying to pick a beat is hysterical. Yes. you know Tim, yeah. Timberland's there with this huge jug of water drinking and he's just going through his list of saved beats that he mm-hmm. has for Jay and Jay is like nah 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 ooh. Yeah, he starts nodding his head, and then 15 minutes later, we have we have dirt off your shoulder. Like mm-hmm. that's the stuff. Like you know, mm-hmm. but in terms of his life story, is that stuff going to be getting into that kind of? No, he's just going to do about the album. Yeah. And so, where can people find you online to discuss either the Knicks sports documentaries or more questions about the last call, the shutdown of New York City bars? Where can people find you online? Uh, you can probably just go to Instagram at Johnny Sweet uh, OCP probably the probably the easiest um it's also my name on twitter mm-hmm. but i try not to engage people about the knicks on twitter because then i'll just start draining other people's cell batteries i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm trying to grow into a more mature man as i enter my 40s so is, is it working uh, not really okay no. that was yeah. that's the honest part we can leave it there uh, so yeah, the documentary is called Last Call, The Shutdown of New York City Bars. And it's uh, a really fascinating, compelling look at like the human cost uh, of some of the decisions that we made during the pandemic. Um, and as you said, like 
we had to do it. We had to, some people had to take the hit for the team, but there could have been a better response. There could have been better leadership. There could have been a better vision for how we get past this moment. And so this is what the struggle is of these people kind of like try and live these lives and figure out not just what to do next, but who they are. You did a great job with it. High five to you and the team. Oh, appreciate it. Uh, I had great production partners on this. So really it's all the credit to them. All right. Uh, that's it. We're done. We covered quite a bit. We covered uh, Winter Soldier, still your number one MCU movie. <laughs> You're proud of the Knicks. And that uh, the documentary is on Tubi and will be on TELUS in Canada uh, in the fall, in October. Right? So. All good, man. All good. All right. We're done. Thanks, Johnny. Hey, Sammy. Hey, pleasure as always. opening verse of the Cheers theme song goes, and you can sing along, you know this, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? That wonderfully sums up the value of a third place as documented in Last Call, the shutdown of New York City bars. That was producer and director Johnny Sweet, and I am Sammy. Yunnan. This episode is dedicated to Pacific Junction Hotel Bar, which sadly, sadly is no longer with us. Pour one out for the comfortable and comforting joints we have all lost. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Cheers, yo.